Nigeria, we shall never impose ourselves upon any other country. On October 1st, 1960, after years of colonialism, Nigeria became independent of the United Kingdom. I shall treat every African territory, big or small, as our equal. Yet despite these noble ideals more than five decades ago, Nigeria continues to be plagued by corruption and sectarian conflict. It is a nation of 500 languages. It is a nation of many religions. Because it is only on that basis of equality that peace can be maintained in our continent. Perhaps because of these struggles, Nigerian fiction writing is stronger than ever. Gugiwa Choingo and Chibamanda Adichie have both previously appeared on this program, but these conversations never quite answered the question of how Nigeria's identity affects contemporary fiction. O.K. Dibe, author of the recent novel Foreign Gods, Inc., was kind enough to meet me to discuss some of these often neglected issues. Okay, so I am here with OK Dibe, who is most recent Dibe. OK Dibe, who is most recently the author of Foreign Gods Inc. OK, thank you very much for being here. Uh, how are you doing? And, and I apologize in advance for any Nigerian mispronunciations. It's all right. <laughs> yes. Thank you very much. I'm delighted to do this interview. So, I uh, wanted to start off from a very uh, odd angle. James Joyce had Eccles Street. James Baldwin had, of course, areas of Paris and, of course, southern France. Uh, I couldn't help but notice that in Foreign Gods, Inc., in concentrating on both Nigeria and Brooklyn, you look to very specific regions. In the case of southeastern Nigeria, uh, that's where you're looking at. You have this fictitious village named Utonki, yes. uh, which was also profiled and featured in Arrows of Rain, your previous book. Yes. Um, and then for the Brooklyn stretch, you have 99 Flatbush Avenue, uh, this second story flat that uh, Ike. Yes. <laughs> I think, I hope I don't have the, the ass like pronunciation. It's actually, Ike. You Ike. just called Ike. 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 Ike is strength. Ike yes. is the buttocks. Okay. Yeah. All right. I'll get the E there, right? Yeah. So Ike, mm -hmm. he lives in the sec this second story flat at yes. 99 Flatbush Avenue. Mm -hmm. uh, and I know that because my, my, uh, my book drop is actually not far from there. Uh, what's interesting about that is that if you go there now, you've got Barclay Center there. <laughs> and it's completely different from whatever sort of uh, regional inspiration you had when you first decided upon that. So I wanted to talk about uh, Utunki and 99 Flatbush Ave as the sort of representative area for which you for which to actually draw a larger idea about what Nigeria is and what Brooklyn is and why these particular uh, places were were draws for you and why you want need to start there. Well, uh, for Utanki, um, it's I wanted to set a now um, set a location in Nigeria that yes. is um, close to my hometown, which is Amorbia. Now, uh, in writing my first novel, I am drawn to, to water, to rivers, and so on. And um, my hometown doesn't have much uh, by way of a river. We have a few streams. So there is a stream called Uvunu, uh, which features in this novel. Yes. Um, so Utanki is actually a part based on a part of Nigeria that I had visited to see a friend of mine from years ago. And I was drawn there because this friend told me that the village is surrounded by this river and uh, that they ate a lot of fish. And I've always been a sucker for fish. Mm -hmm. So I went to his village and spent a whole week eating a lot of fish. 
So this becomes my homage to this village where, where I eat fish and which is surrounded by water. So, so where, where, do you eat, where did you eat fish in Brooklyn then? Uh, well, so, <laughs> so fish in, in Brooklyn, in, I, in Brooklyn I, I, um, I actually happen to have a cousin um, who, lives, who lives in Brooklyn. Um, and so um, their apartment, and my description of it is my cousin's apartment, but their address is different. So I just wanted to give it... Um, my cousin lives on Lafayette, yeah. um, but I decided to name it uh, a different address in the novel. So it, again, aware of um, having something, an image in my mind, but also doing inventing, as it were. Yeah, I'm. I'm still drawn to this idea of you in this Nigerian village eating fish and using this to zero in what the Nigeria is about. I mean, you know, what what does fish eating allow you? And fish eating, of course, is a euphemism for something else as well. <laughs> but mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but uh, what does that do to get you to, uh, I guess, uh, fixate mm-hmm. your geographical uh, energies in fiction? What is what is or just your sense of place of, of what it is to be yes. a Nigerian? Yes. Well, again, I'm intrigued by by bodies of water. Um, I'm intrigued by the ocean, by rivers, by lakes, and so on. And so Utonki was, the, um, if you like, my mother uh, in Nigeria um, is from Onicha, which, has, uh, which is on the banks of the River Niger, which is the most, uh, sure. the grand river in Nigeria. And so I've always been intrigued by, by bodies of water, um, partly because I don't swim a lake. Um, I can't swim to save my life. I, my wife actually was um, uh, as, uh, going to represent Nigeria in swimming at an Olympic Games. Uh, but I tell people that I'll win the record for the fastest to sink to the bottom of any body of water. So in a lot of ways, when I see water or when I see a community with water, there is a part of me that wants to pay homage to it. And so Utonki... Um, which has a uh, uh, which has this river, um, but also which brings me to to that fish that I've I've always loved all my life. Um, so if I had an ideal community, if I was going to um, make myself come from some place, it would have been it would be a place like Otanki. So I invented it so that I would inhabit it as it were. This may seem a bizarre question, but it comes to mind in hearing you talk about being near bodies of water. But do you think that people who have a tendency to live near water uh, tend to be more interesting than the people who live inland or live where landlocked or anything? I, or I believe so. Yeah. At, least, at least those who live close to water, um, just like for me, anybody who can swim becomes exceedingly interesting for me, yeah. which is part of why uh, perhaps I found my wife, uh, Sherry, extraordinarily interesting. You know, just the fact that she can move with such ease, with such comfort and with such um, gusto in in, in water. Um, So yes, I do believe that those who inhabit the river, uh, who live near bodies of water, are more resourceful. Uh, um, I don't know if this is uh, this can hold up to scientific scru- scrutiny, no, no. but but, but you know, it's, 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 in my in my imaginative uh, uh, um, 
world. I think that this is true, very right. much so. It totally makes... I mean, I've lived pretty much near water yes. uh, in my adult life. I was mm. in San Francisco, then New York. So oh. I I, I, can, I think we're on the same level, even though I also recognize this as a completely bizarre, tendentious principle. That <laughs> yes. um, well, let's talk about... Um, I mean, speaking of location, uh, I, I wanted to get into the contrast mm. between Ike's apartment uh, in at 99 Flatbush Ave, which you describe often very specifically. And, and near the end, we really know the geography of that place uh, because some things happen, which I won't give away, uh, you know, involving furniture. Mm-hmm. Um, but after Ike's first trip through the Lagos airport, he, Ike and you, mm-hmm. you, you almost avoid describing the look of Nigeria. I mean, we have a better sense also, for example, the art dealer's mm-hmm. uh, layout. Mm-hmm. Then the house late in the book where there's all this basketball boasting and all these mm-hmm. guys are saying, hey, you mm-hmm. know, if you pay me that kind of money, yes. I can go ahead and play yes. like Michael Jordan. Mm-hmm. Um, I wanted to ask, you know, why that was. Do you think that um, Nigeria is marked more by this kind of general approach to existence uh, that even, whether, whether consciously or subconsciously, you're going to just describe the country that way because there just is, are no specifics. I have a follow-up in relation to this, but I wanted to sort of get your thoughts as to, as to the level of self-awareness here and, mm-hmm. and what it is to sort of live and describe in something that is often abstract. Yes. Well, f- first of all is that um, when I finished this novel, it actually came to more than a thousand pages. Oh, wow. So there was a lot of editing, a lot of basically slowing off of, of huge swaths of the novel. And so uh, when E.K. Um, is, is uh, when his uh, plane is hovering over Lagos, um, uh, there's a long um, scene in the original draft of the novel where I describe how he sees Nigeria. Yeah. And oh, that's in the original, Yeah, in the original draft, he actually spends a week in Lagos uh, with a friend of his who's become very wealthy from doing all kinds of underhanded deals with the politicians and so on. And so we get to see Lagos uh, through the eyes, through Ike's eyes, as his friend takes him to various parties of the rich and famous in Nigeria. All of those scenes became uh, the casualty, if you like, yeah. of this huge cutting process. But that's going to be worked into a different novel because I actually cut uh, about 300 pages from the middle of the novel. Ah, and so I had yeah. Ike stay the night at Stop Off, uh, Stop Off Motel yeah. uh, when in the original draft of the novel, he spends a, a week in Lagos with this classmate of his who, who has a lot of money. Um, so that's one. Uh, but once he goes to his village, I guess the sense of familiarity, you know, the sense that he's returning to a place where uh, he was born. And so I sort of uh, allow the novel to ach- achieve, um, if you like, um, a sense of the unstated, you see. Um, um, so again, because this is filtered constantly through K's consciousness, you know, so the fact that this is... The, uh, of course, the villages change a lot when he returns to it. And, you know, there's this classmate of his, Tony Iba, who's become, uh, again, very wealthy local politician um, and who has a sense that he's giving back the poor people uh, by building a small room where they can watch uh, television and sort of daydream about American life and so on. So, so that kind of... Um, the absence, if you like, of this uh, particularity in the way that 
uh, Nigeria is described owes to both the process of editing yeah. uh, that in, entailed a lot of um, cutting off of details and also the fact that um, E.K. once is in his village, you know, um, that the, the, the descriptions become physical locations, become a bit muted, except in areas where, you know, he notes uh, the dramatic, diff you know, uh, changes in the landscape. This leads me to, to ask, I mean, did you have just difficulty pinpointing the heart of Nigeria for this particular seemingly great Nigerian novel, at least in the early stages? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, mm -hmm. I mean, why do you think that was uh, so difficult to get him to, to go in, eventually find his quest in Utanki? Yes. Well, um, I think when he visits his uncle, you know, um, that my, my sense of, uh, of the focus, Ike's focus, um, is, is, is in Guinea, the deity that he's gone home to, 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 to pick up. So, so when he's at the shrine of, of this deity to visit his uncle, but also to take a look at this, uh, the statue of the deity, you see a ramping up of, of, um, of that the detail, the detail in Nigeria, but that that's 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 um, that simply uh, serves the serve the purpose, if you yeah. like, of um, of, um, of of making making that landscape particularly uh, resonant. Um, but otherwise, um, otherwise, I didn't, you know, again in the process of cut, cutting down on uh, what was a huge um, manuscript, I felt that the novel could do with just this level of detail yeah um yes well i mean the, i would did a, i tried to do a little bit of uh uh you know listening to various radio broad, broadcasts about nigeria and so forth and one of the things i discovered that i didn't really know uh was your census problem yes. i mean uh you oh, have yes. uh festus odimegu odimegu yeah odimegu yes. he's the national chairman of the national population commission and he says that Nigeria has not had a reliable census since 1816. Yes. Um, and yet, simultaneously, Nigeria faces this fascinating issue where they will probably be the third most populous nation in the world by the end of this century. Yes. So there is something to that where they can't track exactly how many people there are. And, and I, it leads me to ask, well, you know, what does this do for Nigerian identity? What does this do for you as a novelist yes, to yes. try to pinpoint what Nigeria is all about when it's, it's quite populous? It's, it's probably more variegated than anybody could even know. Mm -hmm. And yet, you mm -hmm. know, we have, uh, I mean, here, unfortunately here in the States, we have very limited notions of what mm -hmm. Nigeria is. So I just want to get a sense of uh, what that means in terms of Nigerian identity and what that means in terms of Nigerian fiction and African yeah. fiction. Well, Nigeria uh, is a huge fi fictional construct. That's the way I look yeah. at it. Uh, the country is uh, it's much stranger than fiction. Uh, so in my lifetime, uh, the Nigerian population had been put by some kind of intuitive wisdom at 70 million. And then we were all using 70 million as the population of the country. And then after a while, people started saying 100 million. And so we all jumped to 100 million. Uh, and then after <laughs> a while, they said shift. 120 million. Yeah. And so everybody started using that. Recently, in the last two years or so, they've said 160 million. Yeah. And so that is so symptomatic of, of, of Nigeria, a country where um, the things that ought to be I, I describe Nigeria. A friend of mine who is an attorney in Washington, D.C., uh, describes Nigeria as a country where absurdity makes sense. Yeah. See? Um, so Nigeria is a country where 
the most simple things that um, every other country takes for granted becomes complicated in Nigeria. And the most complex things in the world are simplified, you see. Yeah. Um, and so it should be complicated to steal public funds. In Nigeria, that's the easiest thing to do. Uh, now, a census, a sense of how many people there are in Nigeria ought to be fairly simple. That's absolutely impossible uh, to, um, to get a handle on in Nigeria. So it's, it's, it's a very, and it becomes an interesting country in that sense. It's, it's an exasperating country because you, you want to feel like everybody else. But part of what gives Nigeria its particular... Um, its particular energy, its particular um, uh, dramatic interest is that sense of the of chaos and of the anarchic, you know. But we we'll like, you know, some of us would like a little more order in the in the country. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I, I found a 2008 interview you did, and you said, speaking in relation to the Yar Adua Good Luck government, uh, you said Nigerians ascribe honesty to criminals. What we have is a criminal enterprise that masquerades as a government uh, in light of the fact that this book does some very fascinating things about the criminal impulse in terms of E.K. stealing this god and hoping to sell it to this art gallery in Manhattan. I'm wondering how the notion of the honest criminal has changed in the last five years since that statement you made and, and how it ties into this notion of Nigeria that we're talking about now where it can actually – it's stranger than fiction, obviously, mm-hmm. but at the same time um, – you know, you have to have something to work from. So, mm-hmm. how how, how mm-hmm. does how does maybe we can look at it from a vantage point of criminality mm-hmm. and how and I and how this kind of influences a character uh, like like Ek? Yes. Well, um, I'll give you a quick anecdote. There's a Nigerian poli- uh, former governor um, whose name is James Ibori, uh, who uh, two years ago was sentenced to uh, 13 years in Lon- uh, in jail in London for um, stealing. Uh, something in the region of $250 million from his state resources. Uh, an anti-corruption agency in Nigeria estimates that this guy stole 75% of the federal funds that came to his state. Yeah. He was charged before a Nigerian judge um, on 117 counts of, of money laundering and corruption and so on. The judge said he couldn't, not one charge could stick. So the judge, you know, let him free. Uh, it took... Uh, a more serious uh, judicial system in the UK to to send him to jail. So Nigeria is a place uh, that is uh, f- um, ready-made for criminals, mm-hmm. if you like. Uh, it's a place where uh, EK, for example, uh, would um, uh, contemplate going in to steal a deity and to bring it out. There are so many other places where uh, you can go and steal a sacred and important object but in some of those places, it's going to take something of some extraordinary doing to really pull it up. But in Nigeria, all it takes is money yeah. to bribe the customs officials, you know, because the first thing they do when they encounter you doing something illegal is to find out how much they can take from you. And so that's the story, really, of, of a country that has placed money at the center, at the core of its national ethos. Um, and so um, the hope f- by some of us is that this is going to be, you know, that this is going to change. But I don't see it changing because from the president uh, to the local government councillor, uh, 
uh, everybody wakes up every morning thinking of how much am I going to pocket today yeah. from the Commonwealth. Very similar to America, actually, in a lot of ways. Yeah, in a lot of ways. Yeah. But of course, in America, people occasionally get, get sent to jail. In Nigeria, you get sent to jail only if there's somebody higher than you that you offend in the process of stealing. If you are a governor and you steal all the funds that you want, but you, fl- you are close to the president and you flatter the president and you assure the president of your 100% loyalty, the president protects you from prosecution. He lets the uh, anti- anti-corruption agency go after you only if, you, if you're not uh, on his side. Yeah. Well, I also know you were detained in 2011 at the Lagos airport and because you were somehow put on an enemies of the state list. Yes. Uh, And I'm wondering, you know, how did this happen? Why were you singled out? Does this relate to what we're talking about here about everybody waiting for what cut they're going to get? Uh, You know, what's how how does this tie into this? And maybe you can describe what happened here. Well, um, I've actually been detained five times. Uh It's just that the first time um, was when I was when I um, released the information, you know, so it, it, it got national and, and international yeah. attention and lots of groups uh, wrote, wrote protests. But since then, every time that I've gone into Nigeria, I've come out, I've been detained um, for a few hours. Um, the yeah. most recent was last January when I was held overnight for 10 and a half hours. Well, my understanding is that the late uh, Yaradua, uh, Umaru Yaradua, who was imposed on Nigeria in an election that the outgoing president called a do-or-die affair, and I call it a do-and-die affair. Um, Yaradua had tried through uh, several intermediaries to reach me. I write a weekly column in Nigeria. Yeah. And after he was imposed, I made it clear in my column that as a, as a form of protest, I wasn't going to address him as president. So in my columns, I called him um, occupant of Asorok, which is like the equivalent of the White House. I called him resident of Asorok but I refused to call him President Yaradua. And so he sent an ex-military officer um, uh, to talk to me, who you know, is an, an admirer of my column. And I made it clear to this man that uh, my principal position was not going to shift. Um, he came to the UN to address the United Nations, and his press secretary at the time invited me to come meet with him in New York. I said, I can't meet with him because I don't recognize him as the president. And so after a while, I guess they decided to use uh, some draconian uh, tactics. Um, and so in 2009, I received two anonymous messages saying, don't come to Nigeria because you've been included mm-hmm. on a list of enemies of the state. You'll be arrested. Um, I wanted to proceed to Nigeria all the same because I felt I had not committed a crime. Um, but when somebody told my wife, um, my wife wasn't too happy, so I canceled a trip that I was going to make. When Jonathan took over, uh, two of his officials called me um, and uh, assured me that my the list had been, you know, destroyed, that um, I was not in any uh, jeopardy. So in January of 2011, I arrived in Nigeria, presented my passport. And the immigration officer said to me, are you okay in Dubai? I said, yes, indeed I am. So he said, hold on. He went and whispered to a security official who whispered back to him. And I was told to pick up my luggage and return to them. They were going to hold on to my passport, passports because they wanted to see me. So they held me for about three and a half hours. 
eventually confiscated my passport and told me to report to the agency's office on Monday. This was a Saturday night when I arrived. Um, within hours, there had been a firestorm of protests from all over the world. And so when I showed up on Monday, uh, the government said it was all a mistake. My name had been removed from the list and they returned my passport. But I told them it was wrong to have a list yeah. of Nigerians who had not committed any crimes except the crime of decrying corruption in their country. And, um, well, at any rate, it turned out that my name wasn't re removed from the list. So every time I've gone into Nigeria or come out since then, which is a total of five times, I've been stopped at the airport. How does the enemies of the state list compare with, say, a no-fly list here in the States? Well, a no-fly list, I think, in, in a lot of ways, is, 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 can be extremely, extremely um, uncomfortable because it, it, uh, it, it stops you from traveling, essentially, unless you want to get in your car and, and, and go. Uh, enemies of the state, I think, could be very dangerous because um, in my case, when, I, when I'm held, I think that the fact that uh, I'm known not only widely in Nigeria but around the world uh, will give the government pause. But what I told the uh, director of the agency that detained me the first time I met with him uh, was that I was worried that somebody who had written a piece on the internet critical of the government could be included on this list and would be held incommunicado without anybody speaking up for him. Um, so it's, it's frightening what could happen in a country uh, where lawlessness can quickly uh, become quite is easy, see. Um, so, so I, I think that it's it's both ideas are very disturbing, you yeah. know, to 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 um, blacklist somebody from flying, but also to identify somebody who is not a criminal as an enemy of the state. Uh, it's a reflection, uh, in the case of Nigeria, on the ethos of the state. What does this do for dissidents in Nigeria or dissident writing, especially dissident fiction writing? I mean, uh, is it typical for wars to be declared upon novelists like this? Uh, I mean, you know, how do Nigerian writers face the challenge of addressing truths that they have to, especially in a land that has all sorts of complications and all sorts of imbrications. Mm -hmm. What does this mean? And, and how does it, how is, how is it kept alive mm -hmm. and punchy? And all mm -hmm. that? Well, actually the Nigerian state isn't much, doesn't bother much with fiction writers or poets. Yeah. You know, they don't, you know, it's not, I don't think it's a very literate state. It's not a state where government officials uh, read uh, novels or poems and bother about, you know, what you're saying about, about the state and about his officials. I think that they, they, they come after you if, as, in, as happens in my case, you write a column, yeah. which people read every week. Um, so there's a, a certain immediacy uh, there. Um, so I think that that's really where... Um, that's really where uh, the government found me. You know, it's not in my fiction. They, I'm not sure that so many uh, that many government officials have read my novel, yeah. uh, any of my novels, and um, that they will be in a hurry um, to uh, order my detention on account of, of fiction. 
Um, Nigeria has a very vibrant, vigorous uh, media, you know, because we have public and private uh, media. Uh, and the private uh, media can be very uh, energetic, very robust, um, especially in um, uh, exposing corruption. But there's also, uh, within the media, um, levels of collaboration with the, with the corrupt elements in the government, with the corrupt structure of the government. It's no longer elements. It's, it's the whole state is, is in, involved in this business. And so um, governors um, actually have learned to uh, pay off uh, editors and MDs of papers and just, you know, hand them money on a weekly basis uh, to... Uh, to protect them, the governors, from any critical uh, scrutiny. Since we're talking about journalism, and, and I, I was curious to, to talk about how this has had an impact upon your fiction writing, Yes, uh, because there are parts of this book that really move quite fast, uh, especially those two customs moments, yes. which, uh, as we have just established, mm -hmm. you have a plenty <laughs> of experience to draw from here. But, but not just that. I also wanted to actually talk with you about this long italicized chapter yes. that comes just after Ike uh, leaves the Lagos airport. And we learn about uh, just the extent of uh, how Nigeria has been uh, converted and, pro and how there's been this proselytizing that has been going on, the colonial impact. And this chapter seems to go on for forever until we realize, oh, this is kind of encroaching upon our own reading experience, much as the colonial impulse has encroached upon the Nigerian experience. And I, and I wanted to ask, you know, how, how this particular uh, section came to be, especially since you clearly had this massive 1,000-page draft mm -hmm. uh, uh, with other adventures going on. I mean, was the idea to stop the reader in her tracks and say, well, you know what? Uh, you are implicated mm -hmm. uh, in this just as E.K. is, just as all of the kind of American influence, which I touched upon earlier by mentioning the basketball stuff, mm -hmm. uh, is. I mean, you know, what was uh, what was the desire and the drive mm -hmm. to, mm -hmm. to, to, to keep that italicized moment in like that? Yeah, I mean, uh, part of it is what you just uh, talked about. I think that um, I wanted the reader to know, A, that this is... Um, that there is a particular history to 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 this narrative that is happening now to this heist you see that is it's not that there is a particular relationship between Europe and Africa that is still um, that that still defines and shapes the relationship even today yeah right and so um, wherever you go in Europe. Uh, in this country, you find African artifacts, a lot of them with very uh, strong, sacred um, significance that have, have, were moved uh, by Europe, which came into Africa and declared these things um, to be backward uh, images and so on, but then systematically moved those same images to, to Europe and America, where they become... Um, uh, uh, the 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 the, the sort of the, the focus of, of great um, curiosity for 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 museum um, 
uh, habitues and so on. And so, so I wanted the reader to know that uh, it's just like oil. See, Nigeria is an oil-producing country. Yes. And uh, the corruption in Nigeria is directly related to the fact that Nigeria is an oil-producing country. Uh, the fact that the U.S. and other Western governments um, sort of relate to Nigeria in a particular way, uh, uh, all too ready to turn a blind eye uh, to corruption in Nigeria, uh, has everything to do with the fact that there's an interest in keeping oil prices down. So when an American goes and buys fuel at a rather... You know, you know what in other countries will be regarded as giveaway prices. Uh, you are implicated in the fact that Shell and Ajip and Chevron and other oil um, um, conglomerates are, are, are creating environmental disasters in Africa. So you wanted say. to also implicate the reader spiritually. Precisely. Yeah. So I wanted the reader to to feel him him or herself as part of this disturbing narrative rather than feel this is something that is happening out there. So this becomes a way of both historicizing this event, you know, so giving Ngene, um, making Ngene the center of a long-drawn and ongoing uh, contention between Europe and Africa. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah, so that's 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 definitely part of it. And now I know how to say in Guinea. In Guinea, yes. <laughs> uh, so 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 it's it's Guinea, correct? In Guinea. In Guinea. Okay, there's a there's a silent end there. Okay, that's good. Um, I'm curious where uh, what religions you may have drawn upon to get this particular war god. I mean, I looked around trying to see where it might have come from and really uh, I couldn't find any yeah. providence. It could have been just the fact that uh, you start to Google anything involving Nigeria and because mm-hmm. of Google's placement, you have mm-hmm. to go probably mm-hmm. to the 15th mm-hmm. page yes, to get anything yes. worthwhile. So I'm curious, you know, where, what you drew upon for this. Well, for this I drew God. upon my, there's a, a deity uh, in my hometown of Amwabia, uh-huh. which is actually called Ngene. Oh, okay. And as a young man in high school, I used to uh, sneak into the shrine uh, because I love to listen to his chief priest um, talk. And so a lot of that theological incantatory um, uh, performance is, is it comes from this memory of this rich um, um, moving poetic um, and long and long <laughs> yes precisely <laughs> precisely precisely you know so 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 there is uh, so, so it, it 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 came from that uh, my immersion in 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 the in the legend and in the law of uh, of Ngene, the deity from my village, um, I used to sneak in there and just and just listen to the elders talk about about the deity and its its history and its um, great histrionics uh, in in the past. Did you ever swipe something and go home with it and say, "Ha ha"? Uh, <laughs> I didn't go that far. <laughs> All right. Um, actually, since we're talking about this, when Ike goes to visit. Usaku, I think I got Oswaku. that. Osuaku. Osuaku? Osuaku. Oh, that's great. Uh, you have this group of nine men, yes. uh, which you single out, uh, three of them. Uh, I'm going to try to say, some of them I can say, some of them I probably can't, but Man Mountain Polycarp. Yes. He's this labor guy who tells yes. stories about Kalumazi or Karl yeah. Marx. Yes. You have Agbusi, uh, this gourmand of legendary appetites. Uh, you have Gideofo, 
Jadofo. Um, Jadofo, uh, who is this con artist turned holy man. Um, you know, first of all, I'm wondering if there were other guys who didn't make the cut and why you considered, uh, you know, this idea of this group surrounded by the three principles of labor, appetite, and reformed con man mm-hmm. as the way to sort of really convey religion to the reader. Why, why, why were these the, the, the vital elements, the vital sort of, if you go down this road, mm-hmm. these are the characters you're mm-hmm. going to be mm-hmm. around, and these mm-hmm. are the types of uh, human feelings you're going to have to deal with. Okay, well, um, very good question. Uh, my answer is going to be, I'm afraid, um, fragmentary. Uh, but one of the one of the things that I wanted to look at um, is the way in which, as I've said uh, in the past, uh, we um, we are drawn to consuming uh, one another's um, what I call our spiritual uh, or sacred illusions, um, and so. Uh, so you find uh, Mike Grohl's, who has a gallery that vends, uh, that sells um, secret objects from around the world, deities to you know wealthy Americans and Europeans and Asians um, who uh, who want a sense of the exotic. Um, uh, and so then Ike returns to Nigeria and there's this pastor, Pastor Oka, yeah. you know, who is using uh, the Christian religion basically in the same very opportunistic way, you know, to prey on, um, on gullible uh, people like Ike's mother, you yeah. know. And so then Ike goes to the shrine of this deity where he sees his uncle, is 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 um, a very devout uh, follower of his deity, but is also surrounded, interestingly, by uh, the government. You know, by um, again um, um, the um, you know people who who perform. You know, so it's it's a very sensuous, if you like, um, gathering. You know, where you find uh, the very strong religious figure, but you also find the great poetic talkers and so on and so forth. And you find the people who are, again, using um, the religious experience for, for their own personal profit. This particular religion of Nigeria is flexible enough to recruit any kind of skill set that fits into the grand performance scheme. So you come from a year of railing for labor and for unions, you'll find a home in this religion. Yes. You uh, you live a life where you have this greed for food and drink. Guess what? That yeah. kind of excessiveness is absolutely compatible absolutely. with the excessiveness yes. of religion. Um, and same goes for uh, for the other one. Uh, but, you know, my, my question, though, I guess, is, you know, what of the people who don't have mm-hmm. that performative ability? I, I mean, I got the sense that the religion, as you present in this book, is far more accepting of human foible mm-hmm. and and human flaw than the hard Christian do not forgive for any sin mm-hmm. approach that we see, especially in the italicized mm-hmm. chapter and mm-hmm. we see in later italicized moments throughout the yes, book. Yes. Um, you know, is, is that sort of a more innovative religion mm-hmm. or is that merely just the Nigerian spiritual identity? Well, there's no question. I, I can't speak for the Nigerian spiritual identity because Nigeria is very much, you know, as I say, yeah, Nigeria is a hodgepodge. You know, it's it's um, it's it's 
400, perhaps 500 different languages and cultures. Yeah. Um, and uh, even within the area, the Igbo-speaking area where the novel is set, you yeah. still find a huge uh, variety of uh, religious uh, practices and tempers and so on and so forth. But on the whole, on the whole, um, the Igbo uh, religious practices are extremely uh, fascinating for their breadth, uh, for their accommodativeness, for their, um, uh, in fact, what's, what's most fascinating about it, if you, you know, and uh, part of my education in this regard came from my reading and the encountering of, of Chinua Achebe. Yes. Um, you find that the Igbos created their gods, you see. The Igbos created their gods. And so even though the gods had provinces, you know, so there was a god of war, there's a, they will create a god of war, a god of commerce to bring them trade and so on. But if the god was not performing, the Igbos will take the god to a border, a boundary between their town and another community and set it on fire. Or they will withhold sacrifice to the god. So gods have very human attributes in Igbo culture. And so you could actually destroy a god by stabbing it of of of, of sacrifice. You yeah. know, so the god has no food and the god just uh, goes into oblivion and so on. So the Igbo gods tend to be, first of all, there is a multiplicity of gods. And so the kind of orthodoxy that says this is the way is not, this is the one way, is, uh, is incompatible with the Igbo sensibility um, um, and then, so, so yes, so gods have this kind of supple uh, richness of perspective, you know, as, ad, 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 able to adapt, if you like, yeah. um, which is part of why, uh, which is part of the reason that Christianity did so well, because the Igbo were open mm-hmm. to, to the claims of, of the Christians when they came, you know. Uh, without knowing that the Christians simply wanted to supplant, yeah. you know, uh, their own deities, or they, you know, they thought that the Christians were simply bringing in another uh, way of looking at uh, spirituality and so on. But the Christians said, "No, ours is the only way. Yours is the savage, backward way, and you know, we ha- we want to uh, erase erase you." Well, that's a fascinating complicity because if you have a country with 400 to 500 different dialects and you have all sorts of people, you would need to have a successful religion or a successful spiritual element or a successful identity by being inclusive. And that it could be so fragile and so vulnerable to the impulses of imperialist Christianity says much for... Is is this going to be the endless kind of uh, series of cycles that Nigeria is going to have to contend with? Is the country of Nigeria always going to be open to this vulnerability? Do you think, or mm-hmm. or is there any way that it possibly can adapt so that it will always be stronger than any kind of outside force attempting to destroy what's so magical about it? Tough to say. Yeah. You know, Nigeria is uh, very much a work in progress. It's not a particularly promising work in progress. Um, if you've been following uh, the news lately from Nigeria, yeah. you'll find that Nigeria is increasingly in the, in the throes of, of uh, sectarian yeah. uh, extremism. You know, so Boko Haram, uh, an Islamic group in the northern part of the country, has declared 
a jihad on Western values and Christianity and yeah. animist re- religions and so on. And there's a brand of, of um, again, fundamentalist Christianity that is um, rising uh, in the country that is actually plaguing um, not only uh, people who don't believe as they do believe, as uh, this adherents believe, but also uh, affecting, poisoning individual relations. You know, so you find in the case of the novel where this uh, rogue pastor is able to convince uh, Ike's uh, mother that uh, Ike's uncle Oswa, who was responsible for the death of her husband, so that sort of thing is 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 rife uh, yeah. actually in, in in parts of Nigeria and. Um, so Nigeria, Nigeria is you know I mean um, you you talked about dialects. I am actually talking about languages. Yeah. You know, four hundred plus languages because I speak Igbo. That's my Nigerian language, and Igbo has at least twenty dialects. So if we added dialects in Nigeria, we'll be talking about thousands of dialects. And, my mistake. <laughs> yeah, you know. So 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 there's this great um, this this huge country which is a creation of the British, actually. So part of the drama, part of the tragedy of Nigeria is that the British threw together this behemoth of a country and Nigerians have not been able to, to forge it into a coherent, cohesive uh, uh, um, community. You know, so we simply, as, as um, uh, Achebe shows in his novel No Longer It Is, everybody simply wants a cut of the national cake, but nobody's talking about how do we bake this cake, you see? And so, so there is um, uh, constant angling by uh, uh, different ethnicities and members of different religions in Nigeria to have carve out more and more of the cake for themselves, yeah. but nobody's talking about baking a bigger, larger and larger cake so that everybody feels a sense of um, belonging and a sense of being catered for uh, by this community. I'm wondering, though, if this also affects the ability for outside countries to actually look into Nigeria and understand these complicated situa- this complicated these complicated issues. Uh, I'm going to bring up actually a critical review of your book by the Complete Reviews, Michael Orthofer, uh, which kind of addresses this problem in a very interesting way. He uh, criticized this book for an early scene in which Ike, who graduated from Amherst with an economics degree, well, he can't find a job in the financial services industry in the late 1990s. Uh, granted, his review does get more pedantic as it goes along. Mm-hmm. Uh, I actually was kind of laughing my ass mm-hmm. off <laughs> as I was reading it. But, mm-hmm. but I think that this first criticism, uh, this first criticism, actually, it does have a valid point. Um, I mean, yeah, why should Ike be penalized for his accent over his credentials? But it also, you know, makes me wonder if you were basing this off of a certain kind of experience that's just not conveyed in fiction, especially on the American side, and whether this also brings up the question of whether you need to have a fluid, uh, heightened realism to convey the Nigerian essence to other readers, uh, and that if this is in conflict with a sort of uh, very hard and literal realism, someone who's nitpicking like Warthofer did, mm-hmm. uh, you know, about small matters, whether, you know, I mean, how do, how do you get both audiences on the same page? I mean, that's, that, is this a question you struggle with? Is this an issue you've thought about? Mm-hmm. Well, it's it's. Um, I actually haven't I haven't read that that particular review. Yeah, so yeah. Uh, maybe after this interview, I'll, <laughs> I'll go give it a quick read. Um, but I can tell you that 
that particular segment, the fact that EK has um, an excellent uh, degree from diploma from an American college, uh, prestigious one, but can't get a job, uh, is consistent with the experience of many, many Nigerians, not just Nigerians, but Asians and so on in this country. Um, in fact, one of my students at Brown University read this novel, um, um, the, the, the galley of this book, and called me, uh, woke me up in the morning and just was fascinated. Uh, he says his father has an MBA, yeah. but has been a cab driver for 20-something years. So he said, it was like you were telling my father's yeah. story. Then he has an uncle who also has a master's degree and is a cab driver. Uh, his father actually worked for a company, and the company downsized and uh, let him go, and it, he wasn't able to find a job, so he ended up driving cabs for 20-something years. It is a reality. I've met Nigerians who uh, come to this country and batten down, and they yeah. do very well in school, but the language gap, you know, or he will get a job. Ike will get a job if he wanted a job in... Uh, in some department of, of the government, you know, where he's not interacting with outsiders. But if he's going to talk to Americans, uh, suddenly uh, you find um, a, a, a very curious, you know, um, uh, exclusion, you know, of people who don't speak in a particular way. You yeah. know, it's like um, we can't, our clients can't understand you. So it's a real problem. And interestingly, um, in the early draft of the novel, I have E.K. spend a longer time in the cab with this um, uh, fair who is extremely annoying to him. Yeah. And every African who read it wanted that longer version. Every American said, cut, cut, cut. Wow. You know, we want to get to the chase. We want him to go to Nigeria quick, quicker. Wow. Uh, it's interesting, yeah. you know. So, so I think that maybe part of what um, uh, you're talking about is, has to do with um, experience, yeah. uh, taste, and so on. And I'm willing to, to, uh, to concede that, you know, it's not everybody who is going to see uh, the same things that uh, an African uh, Nigerian reader might see. But to actually respond to your point that many uh, people who come to this country with prestigious credentials can't get the jobs. I mean, we're familiar here with those narratives of like people who come from India mm -hmm. and Pakistan uh, and Afghanistan and Iraq and Iran. And we know that they have that difficulty, but we're not so... Um, Either we're not listening or, or, or it hasn't actually predominated the mainstream, the fact that this also happens to people from Nigeria, from people all over Africa when they actually come to mm -hmm. this country. They all want the exact same thing, to have a job, to, to, to be able to make money, to be able to have a home, to be able to have a family. And yet it is fascinating to me that, that there's less, um, less attention paid to this particular perspective mm -hmm. and more uh, to, the, to the Middle East and, and, and all that. I, I mean, maybe that, do you think, is part of the problem? Have you, have you, seen, have you seen this, what I'm talking about well, here? Well, I, I think so. I, I think that people on the whole expect, uh, say, Pakistanis yeah. uh, to come here and have that problem, um, but much more so than they expect Nigerians or yeah. Kenyans you know, to come here and have that problem. Uh, so it's not talked about much. And the truth is also that um, Nigerian African fiction uh, is only now really coming to uh, 
what I'll call it, another renaissance, sure. you know, so there is renewed interest, you know. For a while, it was Asian writers, you know, sort of seized the moment. And so wherever you looked, there was another Asian. Sounds like uh, the art gallery. Precisely, precisely <laughs> you know, so it's like uh, this, this, so Asian. There's a market so for it right now. African yeah. writing seemed to be in vogue, yeah, you know, yeah. as, as, as it is. And so, and so um, more and more African writers are telling um telling their stories and you know a, a lot of them telling it excellently i think yeah but you know the fact that somebody's a nigerian you know uh, a lot of americans say to me so what language did you speak uh, did yeah. you learn i said nigeria has 500, close to 500 yeah. different languages so english which is the language of our colonial uh, overlords the british uh, was the language of our instruction in schools and the, the language of the media and so on and so forth um but then there are Nigerians who come here who speak English, but they will say, uh, the Ni typical Nigerian, when they want to say inevitable, will say inevitable, yeah. inevitable, yeah. okay? Um, and so Americans say, what was that? They will say inevitable. They say, I can't understand you. And then they spell it, oh, inevitable, yeah. you see? Um, I know of a Nigerian who, instead of saying KLM, will say KLOM. Yeah. KLOM. So Americans will say, what is that? You know? So when you come with that kind of quote unquote problem, it is not a problem when you are with Nigerians. You know, my name, okay, for example, was fine when I lived in Nigeria. Then I came to this country. And I'll tell people my name is okay, and I have the greatest stories. You know, they, I mean, I have amazing stories around my name, right? But in Nigeria, I'll say to people, my name is okay. They say, oh, hi, okay, nice to meet you, and they'll tell me their names. You may as well say. be John or Fred. Here. Yeah, precisely, <laughs> you know. Um, so the, the cultural difference, uh, whether it's by name, whether it's by color, whether it's by accent, yeah. uh, have a particular purchase and, um, and actually determine... Uh, our access to opportunities in America um, and elsewhere, not just in America. Actually, Nigerian immigrants do much better in this country than they do in England, you know, um, despite our relationship. Why is that? I don't, I don't, I think that I have my, I have colleagues of mine who have PhDs from universities in universities in, in the UK and they can't get jobs to teach. So they end up either going to Nigeria or coming to this country to get teaching positions. I think that the the British tend to be, on the whole, more conservative uh, in that the whole idea of affirmative action um, or the what I what you call inclusiveness hasn't quite caught on the way it has in this country. Uh, but so so I, I'm not. I hope it doesn't come across that I'm giving America, you know, a bad name. America is a great place. You know, I've, I've had a great run in America. And I, I know so many people who have. But there are lots and lots of people who are highly educated, uh, who have come from different cultures, and they can't, and they come with this expectation that they will have a piece of the American dream. And then there's a little thing, and often it's that accent, you know, that, uh, that kills them. Yeah. You've mentioned Chinue Ashibi uh, several times yeah. during this conversation, so I have to actually bring up um, this Guernica piece that you wrote yes. uh, in which you uh, called 
Achebe and Wule Soyinka, your two personal saviors, in, in his 2010 essay. With Achebe, he gave you a second interview after you learned that your, your tape hadn't recorded the conversation. Yep. This tape is recording this conversation. <laughs> <laughs> Good. Um, but uh, with Soyinka, it was him reading your manuscript. Uh, how, how else were Achebe and Soyinka your saviors, and how much of writing Foreign Gods, Inc. informed that, uh, okay. that spirituality, so yes, to speak? Yes. Totally different. Okay, well, um, growing up, I've been very lucky. I've been extremely lucky because uh, when I was in high school, I, re- I read works by Shoyinka, by Achebe, by Ngugiwa Thiango. And um, in life, I got to meet them. I got to become close to all three men and other African writers, some other African writers. And I got to be boosted, if you like, uh, in different ways by their generosity. Um, uh, in the case of of, uh, of uh, Wale Shoinka, you know, I um, um, I had gone to a talk that he was uh, he gave at uh, Hampshire College, and I had the, man- the manuscript of my first novel yeah. in my bag. I wanted to beg him to read it. But he was in exile uh, at the time. The Nigerian military dictator uh, at the time wanted his head, and Shoinka was living abroad. And so I felt it was unkind, ungracious of me to impose on him uh, when he was going around the world speaking against this dictatorship. So I said, no, I'm not going to show him this manuscript. So I attended the talk, at the end of which I went up to him. I had known him from years ago when he won the Nobel Prize in 1986. I was a young reporter and I had interviewed him. So he saw me and said, okay, you came and we hugged. And he said, one of your professors, I had graduated from UMass with with an MFA at the time, said, one of your professors told me at lunch today that you've written this fascinating manuscript. Can I get to read it? And I said, oh, I happen to have a copy in the car. He said, oh, don't give it to me here, I'll lose it. Send it to Emory University, where he was then, he had some position. So I sent it to him, this was October. And every couple of weeks I'll call and, you know, leave a message with his secretary and he'll call me from different parts of the world and say, my secretary told me you called, I'm sure you want to know if I've read your manuscript. No, I haven't, but I will read it. Then came Christmas of 98, and um, an American family had invited my family and I to spend Christmas with them. And in Nigeria, on Sunday, we ate rice and chicken and so on. So it was a staple. And definitely at Christmas, rice is at the center and chicken of, of the meal. But we spent the entire Christmas day, there was no rice in sight and there was no chicken. So I told my wife, I said, look, this is going to be the first Christmas in my life, sentient existence, when I haven't eaten rice and chicken. So I said, we have to run home. The plan was to spend be with this family till midnight. I said to my wife, we have to run home. I'm going to boil some rice and eat so that this day will not go down in infamy. And so we came home and I started the water, started boiling some rice. And then I started playing uh, messages on our uh, home phone. And one of them was from Wale Shoinka. I said, okay, I just read your manuscript and I find it highly evocative and I'm impressed by it. And so I turned off the stove. And my wife said to me, so I thought you said you were going to eat rice. I said, yeah, Shoinka's message is better than rice, you see. Yes. So that's how, so I, I wrote an essay actually called How Shoinka Saved My Christmas. Yes. You know, 
uh, in Achebe's uh, case, um, my very first interview as, as a, a reporter, um, I was asked to go and interview him because I had met him through uh, a young woman from his town um, who happened to be his relative, and she took me to him. I went to visit her in her hometown of Ogidi, and she, you know, we were talking, and I started gloating about Achebe and how wonderful he was. And she said, oh, do you know he's my uncle? I said, whoa. And she says, and he lives around here. I said, he does? And she said, yeah, and he's home for the weekend from the university where he was a professor at the time. So she said to me, do you want to meet him? I said, do I ever? So we went to his house. He um, gave me, I still remember, a bottle of Coke and uh, some cookies. And so I told him I had just finished college. I was going to start, I'd been hired by this newspaper and I was going to resume in a week or so. And that I would like to interview him. And he said, give me his home number and said, anytime you want an interview, I'll give you one. So I came, reported for duty, told the editor that I had met Chino Achebe and he would give me an interview. And he said, that's your first assignment. So the paper flew me out. I did this interview with him in his office for three hours. I returned to my hotel room and some of my friends came to listen to Achebe's voice. And not one second had taped. Yeah. And so I called him in panic. I said, could I come tomorrow? Just give me 20 minutes. Because I had been flown out by the magazine. And if I returned without an interview, that would be the end of my job. So he said, I can't do it tomorrow, but come the day after and I'll give you as much time as you wanted. And so I returned two days later and actually gave me an interview for at least two and a half hours. And so I uh, had the opportunity some years ago when I was teaching at Simon's Rock College to introduce him. And I told the audience I'm not going to do the usual conventional uh, introduction. I said, I'm going to tell you how uh, Chino Achebe saved my professional career. So I yeah. told this story. Yeah. I mean, how else has he saved you aside from this particular story? I mean... Well, Achebe was the person who brought me to this country. Um, in 1988, um, he was a visiting professor in the U.S. And some friends uh, met with him and said they would like to set up an international magazine. And Achebe had the confidence in me to say that he wanted me to come and be the founding editor. And so he brought me to this country. Um, so I ascribe everything that has happened in my literary career. I don't think I would have quite been the novelist that I am today uh, if I hadn't made that journey. Um, it wasn't always smooth. I mean, there was a lot of anguish and a lot of suffering in the process. But I think that Achebe bringing me here and the sort of the closeness uh, between us over the years uh, that he inspired me. And, you know, in my first novel, I uh, in the acknowledgement page, um, I said that Achebe um, opened my eyes to the beauty of our stories. And so once I recognized that, once, once I saw how important he was as a writer, I wanted to, as it were, pay him the ultimate homage yes. by becoming a writer as well so of e fiction. Even in Nigeria, you need serendipitous connection to kind of get a career going. <laughs> absolutely, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Well, on that note, okay. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure to chat with you. Well, thank you very much. This has been extraordinary. Fantastic. All right. <laughs>